Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Millenniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. Well, y'all, thanks for being here. Um, I feel somber today. Um, it's been whew, it's been a heavy couple of weeks. Um, I contemplated whether or not um, I should wait even further on this next episode, but um, I'm really grateful to have had this moment to talk with Tamisha Tyler um, about her dissertation on Octavia Butler and her vision casting a world of imagination for us. I feel like this may be um, a balm to some listeners. Um, I I know that um, shit has been difficult. Um, what with the pandemic and so much like um, economic uncertainty for many of us and now um, the ongoing protests that are happening all over the country and really all over the world um, because of the horrifying murder of George Floyd. Um, I feel a little (sighs) surprised and taken aback by um, the space that so many white centrists and liberals are now holding for the black liberation conversation. Um, but I have to imagine that more of us have to get on board, um, in order for change to happen. Um, I'm really excited to have conversations in the coming months about what that might look like. Um, in case you missed it, um, I posted on Instagram right before muting myself for this week um, to kind of talk about what it looks like to step into direct action as somebody who is an empath or a highly sensitive person, an HSP, um, or any really trauma survivor who um, fears conflict, fears escalation, um, has a lot of triggers around that energetic space. Um, It's really important that we learn how to shield um, those of us who do experience that um, so that we can show up and do the work. And yet there are also so many other ways for those of us who are not able to be on the streets um, to, you know, support bail funds around the country to um, provide financial and physical support and assistance to um, your local organizers. Um, We have some really cool chapters here of Black Lives Sacramento, Black Lives Matter Sacramento, um, anti-police terror Sacramento, and I'm still finding out a lot about a lot of them. Um, And it is, uh, I'm, I'm sad. And I would say I feel a certain amount of, not shame, but just I wish I had known 
more about this new city that I've moved to and the organizers and the people here um, that I could have been supporting beforehand. Um, thankful to be gathering some of that information now and I encourage you to do the same. I am excited to have this conversation with a fellow four with Tamisha Tyler. Her energy is so effervescent and her expertise um, so incisive. Um, yeah, anyway, sorry I'm not fun, guys. <laughs> Shit sucks right now. Um, but I'm excited to be sharing this space with you. I'm glad that we're all still here. And I'm excited to make space for this conversation, really just for Tamisha to put her brilliance on display. Hey, I'm Tamisha Tyler. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am currently the co-executive director of Art, Religion, and Culture and a PhD candidate in theology and culture with a minor in ethics. Wow, incredible. Um, and so do you know what your Enneagram number is? I do. I am a four with a five oh, wing. We love it. I'm a four also, um, but yeah. I tend to I tend to sit with a three wing a little bit more. Um, okay. Do you remember kind of like the aha moment that led to you realizing that was you? Yeah. So I um, when I got first introduced to Enneagram, it was like mm, probably what 2013, 14. I had a few friends who were talking about it, and and I was like, you know, I like you know personality tests and things like that and taking them and you know whatever and so I I took it and and I thought I was a five for a really long time oh yeah and it wasn't until I read the book by Richard Rohr right and you you he has a lot about the shadow side and once I read the shadow side of a four I was like <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really a four yeah I'm, I'm not a five <laughs> <laughs> because I think it, it's so pinpointed, um, not so much all of my trauma, although, you know, that, but just the <laughs> way that I've learned to cope with it, like the coping mechanisms and the protection mechanisms that I developed yeah. growing up, that really resonated with me. And so I was like, yeah, I think I'm a four with the five wing. And so that was the aha moment for me, although I, I, I oftentimes encounter other fours. And I'm like, am I a four? Because I am not like that. <laughs> Well, I always me. find it interesting, like the four. So there's there's a few stereotypes out there about the four that were overly romantic, overly emotional, that were always sad. Um, I don't know that I don't know that I find any of those particularly useful, although they definitely like play a part from time to time. Um, yeah, I think that. I mean, that's the interesting thing about stereotypes, right? Is that they always <laughs> take those things and one, they exaggerate them and they make them extremely negative. Yes, and so it's like, yes. you may be emotional. Yeah, okay, okay. You may be romantic. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. But the exaggeration and the negativity around it is like what people then become to believe that a four is. And so I think that that's a huge misconception. And it's not saying that we aren't, you know, romantics or emotional or anything like that. It's just saying that, you know, those are aspects of us. And there are certain mm. mechanisms that we fall back into and patterns we fall back into when we are unhealthy or when we encounter things that we haven't done the work to prepare for. And those are just ways for us to learn how to articulate what those patterns are as opposed to being stereotyped into always being that way. Yeah. 
You know, it's funny because I believe that you and I met in person at Wild Goose in the subversive liturgy. Um, I, it was a it was a panel, I think. Yeah. Um, and I wonder. I'm just having this thought off the top of my head. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me so much about your um, the way that you spoke that day was how comfortable you seemed with holding space for grief. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wonder if that has something to do with that four sensibility of being able to carry big emotions and to create space for other people's. Yeah. I, I think that has a huge, I think that it's a huge part of it. And I think it's, it's part of like the sense of like growing up like a, like a, as a four, my part of my, you know, origin story as a four, as it were, was really kind of based on being growing up as a middle child and growing up as a very quiet child. And so since there are a lot of children and I was a quiet one, it was just like, you know, I kind of always did things on my own. So when I had big emotions and when I had all these things that I was dealing with growing up, I didn't really talk about it, but it, wasn't, mm. it didn't mean that I didn't process it. And so I learned early on to work through those big emotions because I didn't always have the attention of somebody to work through them with me. Yes. And so yes. developing those mechanisms, I think, prepared me for just kind of working through emotions with people because I'd already been practicing that as a young child. Wow, that's so interesting. So you were the one creating space for your emotional world as a, as mm -hmm. a small kid and then growing up you have had what what was it like kind of transitioning to okay i'm i'm carrying and holding all of this this emotional landscape internally and now i'm trying to connect with others um and hold space for them was that a difficult transition or did it kind of happen seamlessly yes <laughs> I, th I think it's a little bit of both it's the okay. sense of like it, it, it was seamless in the sense that it was leading by example in terms of like leaning into the thing and then other people going, okay, how did you do that? And go, well, this is what worked for me and learning from that experience. But it was also difficult because I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to translate that experience and conversation to other people. Mm. And so one of the things that I, I say, I still say, um, is that writing was my first language. So when I was a kid, a lot of my process was through writing. So I still have like journals and like poetry from like the fifth grade. And this is when I was really trying to work out all of those big emotions. And so that translated a lot into my initial relationships. And I would get like, you know, people would be really mad at me, like, you know, dealing with exes and being really upset and then like writing them a letter because that was the only way I knew <laughs> how to process. Yeah. Like, Seriously, you can't just talk to me. And I'm like, you read that first, you know? <laughs> and, that, and, and it was a transition of figuring out how to take the processes that I had learned and then to translate them so that other people understood them first. Um, that was very difficult. And once I began to, to, to nuance that, and it's honestly something I'm still learning to do, I think it helped a little bit for me to then translate my process to help other people find their processes. Mm. And I think that that is one of the strengths of a four, because we are so, I don't want to say individualistic, but because we, you know, this sense of like need to be special, need to be, you know, unique. Um, yes. Is that we <laughs> see that same sense in others. It's not like we want to hoard for healthy for anyway. It's not like we want to hoard that for ourselves, that experience. It's like, 
No, everybody should be able to feel like they have their own unique thing. And so taking that as a strength as opposed to a weakness helped me to really learn how to create space for people who were different. Because one, my own uniqueness and my own, you know, wanting to be seen for who I am drives me. And so it allows me to be able to go, well, if people feel the same way I feel, how do we help them get to that point for themselves? Ooh, yeah, that's really good. I feel like there's, um, there's, there's such a capacity for the four. Once you learn to, once you learn to see outside of yourself and your own, um, emotionally escape, the more that you are able to sort of guide people through that experience for themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to hear a little bit about your work. I think it's so, I think it's so interesting how many different, it seems like you have a few different hats that you wear because you refuse to be boxed in. And I love that. We'll talk more about that later. (laughs) Um, what is it about your distinct personality that, that lends itself to your work as a writer, a poet, a teacher, an executive director? I don't know. I think it, it's that sense of like kind of not wanting to be boxed in, but it, it's saying it's the, and one of my mentors taught me this, it's the yes and. It's the I don't have to, the lines that are drawn don't have to be lines. The distinctions that are placed don't have to be distinctions. They help us to articulate a certain aspect about ourselves and communicate that to other people. But they in and of themselves are created just like everything else. And so when you realize that, they become really helpful, but they don't they also don't become limiting. And so as I think about what it's going to take for me to do the work that I want to do, I feel like, okay, there is this field here and this field here or this set of skills here and this set of skills there. And at some point, I'm going to need to use them all. I mean, I need to use them all at the same time. Sure. But because I don't feel, I feel like that they are articulations and not limitations. I don't mind going back and forth between them. And I don't feel like other people have to either. Because it's like every new field that was ever created was something of something, right? And so it's like somebody had to think outside the lines. You know, somebody had to, you know, think outside the box. Somebody had to utilize, you know, these things. Everything we've ever created, or we don't create from nothing. So we create by putting things that probably wouldn't go together, together. Yeah. And so if that's what creation is, then it's just applying that idea um, vocationally or career-wise or academically. There's such a strong thread of imagination through your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like that's sort of what you're doing is you're, you're imagining connections that other people haven't, um, necessarily put, put those pieces together. Um, or at least most people haven't. Um, mm-hmm. what does, what role does imagination play in your work as a whole? I think it plays a huge role. It's super central to me because the imagination is just, <sighs> It's an exercise in possibility, right? Mm. So when you're a kid and you're seeing all these different things and like, you know, you have a Barbie and you have a a wrestling action figure like I did when I was a kid. And you're playing all these different, (laughs) you know, scenarios. And it's like you're just practicing all of the possibilities with the things that you have. And there's a certain freedom in that because it's like, in that sense, 
limitations are very moldable. Mm. Like the Barbie, you know, on the box is supposed to do this thing or this action figure on the box is supposed to do this thing. But when I create a whole nother world with them, I'm saying that, you know, it, I could use it for that, but I don't have to. And so it, it creates this sense of practice of, le- of leaning more into um, a world that just what you have been given. And yes. I think that that practice is very important in whatever it is that we do. Um, it's important in the way that we interact with people. It's important about the type of work that we do. It's important for the way we, we find, you know, many a solution to many of the problems that we're facing. It's a certain practice of possibility. And if we only see one way of doing something all the time, we won't get anywhere. Yeah. Because yeah. just like right now, there's so many things that are out of our control. <laughs> if we haven't been building up that muscle of practice of the possibility, then we will only do the things that we've always done. And when new things come, how do we, how do we you know, react to that? Um, or the way that we do react to that would be insufficient. And so I think imagination then has to be central in what we do. And, and, and especially for what I do in my work in theology, because at the end of the day, none of us are 100% sure what the hell happened or will happen. Right. <laughs> right. We're just making, we're not so much making shit up, but we're like making faithful, educated guesses. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And so to do that work in and of itself is a practice of the imagination. And we're allowing ourselves to be, to be led in, in, on this journey in a way to say, we don't have it. Like tomorrow we could be 50 million times wrong. We can learn about something scientifically that changes the way we think about how we interact to our environments. We can learn this, this can happen. All these things can happen that can completely change everything. And so rigid lines and systems help us to learn how to articulate that. But practicing possibilities and using our imagination help us to live into that. And Mm. so we have to have both. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting because I've, I, I've, I've been trying to sort of work out the, the difficulties that I'm having with like, um, the rigid radicalism that we see online. Um, -hmm. and then, you know, like the restorative justice side of things that I want to see that is, that is possible, but would, would take a lot to get there. Um, -hmm. and I think it's helpful to hear you articulate the need for both. It's not an either, or it is that yes. And, Mm -hmm. um, well, I think this is a perfect moment to kind of talk about, I would love to hear more about your, um, are you still working on your dissertation on Octavia Butler? Oh, yeah. I am currently okay. um, looking at a blank page because, you know, <laughs> writing during a pandemic is one thing, but writing about Parable of the Sower during a pandemic is very different. It's like, let me write about the novel that depicts the thing that we're living in. In the th- like it, Wow, that's trippy. Yeah. It's really trippy. And so <laughs> it's really even hard for me to go back and read because it's like, you know, I had friends who I, you know, told to read. And this is months to almost a year before the pandemic where they came back to me and said I had to put it down because it was too real. Mm. Now, imagine that's a year before now. <laughs> and so, but, but I think... Part of it is I still kind of try to press on with it because there's so much hope and it's a very sobering hope. And I think it's a kind of hope that we need right now because she doesn't, um, Octavia Butler doesn't um, hold back. She leaves out the cards like this is where, you know, 
we could possibly be like people have asked her if it's prophecy she's like i hope not um but like (laughs) the reality is is the writings on the wall this is what it will look like and you know but but not going okay the end next you know next book next series she's really wrestling with what does it mean to continue to press forward to have hope to find community to find your people to do all of these different things to honor the land honor each other in the midst of this mm. and you know and even that is complicated and she doesn't um uncomplicate it for us but she lays it out and she gives us ways of practices to lean into the moment without um sugarcoating it or creating any kind of sense of happy endings and um, I think that gives me enough to kind of lean in even a little bit during this time and so I'm really at the beginning and it's really it's really fascinating to see um, Octavia Butler has really come back like there's been all of this work done about her especially with her archives opening up at the Huntington Library four or five years ago now and about two years after it opened up and they had their first public display of scholarship from the archives was when I came back to her and started reading Parable of the Sower. I had read um, Kindred earlier. Oh, this is great. I'm going to read all her stuff, you know, (laughs) and, you know, then life happens. And then, you know, I'm taking a break from school and I'm like, I should probably do something artsy. And somebody literally was like, here's two tickets to the Huntington Library because I wanted to see the exhibit. And I was like, thank you. And I went to see the exhibit. And some of her journals were on display and just reading like a journal entry. I was like, I need to pick this back up. And right when I said that, it was like so, so like this incredible moment because I'm like, I need to start rereading her. And I turn around and there's this huge poster of like Parable of the Sower. And I was like, oh, I guess I can start with that book. And I, oh my God. I, hadn't, I didn't plan it. And I read the book and it was what the summer 2017. And I was like, what just happened? Why are we talking about this? Because I'm trying to, we had just finished the subversive liturgies. I'm trying to figure out how to hold, you know, culture and theology and justice and all these different things. And I'm like sitting there and I'm like, the question comes to me, like, what are the artists doing? How are the artists responding in all of these mm. times and to all of these different things? Like, yes, that is the question. And, and not just the question that shapes my dissertation, but the question I think that's going to shape and that shapes um, my work in the long term. Like, what are the artists doing? And I think that there's something about, you know, how everybody says, follow the money and it, it tells you a story. I think <laughs> if you follow the artists um, and not just the art but the artists themselves, I think there will be a very interesting story, especially in the midst of how artists are are responding to um, social issues. And so I was like, that's the question. Now I just got to find artists. And then, you know, a few weeks later, I read Parable the Sower. Um, So that's how that came to be. But just seeing so much of her work kind of, you know, blow up, and then people are really beginning to make the connections between her work and religion, which is, um, what my dissertation is going to focus on um, is really exciting and also daunting because everybody's looking now. <laughs> They're like, hey, we've been thinking about this. Hey, aren't you writing a dissertation on that? And now it's like, oh, okay. Everybody's looking at Everyone wants this. to read it. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, I mean, I do too, but, you know, that means I have to write it. And so it's the <laughs> sense of being faithful to her her work and her thoughts where she is and I think the biggest thing especially being um, a Christian theologian is 
to not appropriate her work into the Christian doctrine, mm. to to hold her in the truth of, of who she is in her own words, in her own thoughts, um, knowing that she does offer a critique of Christianity and she does complicate the ways in which she's interacting with it as a, as a way to think about religion. And so holding that tension, knowing that I'm bringing something to the table and knowing that she has something to say and honoring her words is, I think, going to be the most difficult part of this work because I don't want to fall into that trap of everybody saying, well, this is just another version of this Christian doctrine. And I'm like, I don't, that's not what I want to do. I want to honor her words for what it is mm. um, and, 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 and hold it in, in, in the true reality of what it is, but knowing that I myself bring a particular lens. Right. Right. Um, and so how do you hold that balance and how do you stay true to that? And I think that that is always the work of, you know, a scholar, a person that is interpreting culture. Absolutely. Um, I, I read your latest blog post about what Octavia Butler can teach us in the time of COVID-19. Um, and one of, one of the most beautiful sentences that stuck out to me, but I was like, what does that mean? Um, (laughs) is the, the idea of God is change. Um, and I think that ties into what you were talking about, about imagination, but how do you interact with that, with that concept? Yeah, so the God has changed concept is to, it's a central tenet for Earth Seed, which is the religion in the parable series. And so the full is um, everything you touch, you change. Everything that changed changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God has changed. Oh, and wow. it, it really deals with the sense that the inevitability of change, um, the constantness of change, um, operates and dictates our life as in such um, and as such a way that in the same way that that we think about God or a deity dictating mm. influencing our life. And um, I think for me, that really opened me up because obviously change is inevitable, right? And, and how do you correlate that with this concept of an unchanging God? And this is kind of paralleled in the beginning of the book when she's talking about her father being a Baptist minister. And it's, it's executed be- beautifully by the uh, Parable of the Sower play by Toshi Rogan and, and just the ways in which her father and the older group think, you know, God don't ever change. <laughs> but then she's saying, no, 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 no. God is change. And so here you have these two extremes and like, how do you reconcile them? And I think... As a Christian, that becomes really wavering because we learn, you know, God never changed. God is always, God is always that. But then when you're, when you're faced with all of these things and all of this stuff and you're just like, well, if God is always this, then how come dot, 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 right? Hmm. Um, and so I think the concept of God is change helps us to understand that there is There are things that are out of our control, out of our knowledge, things that we can't always pinpoint, things that we can't always say, this is blank, period. Um, That's not how life works. Yeah. And so what skills, what practices, um, what rituals of both grief and adaptation and joy and partnership are necessary if change is inevitable in a way that it is not necessary if the thing that controls everything never changes. You mm, see what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, the way we practice is the way we connect to one another 
it's reflected upon how we think the world is. So if we believe that there is a deity and nothing changes ever, we haven't been developing practices of change. We haven't been developing practices of partnership, practices of grief, practices of um, adaptability, because at the end of the day, the deity that rules everything doesn't change at all. Right, right. If God is change, what does that mean about the way that we respond to that? What does that mean about the way that we see and honor one another? And Mm. I think that there is something very, very important that can be learned in that, um, that we can, that we can gather and understand about our practices in that. And so I hold true to that, 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 that sense of like, what is the possibility of God has changed? Can God be changed and God be good all the time? And all the time God is good. And those two <laughs> things coexist. If we're operating within the yes and, then the answer can be yes. The, the, mm. the thing then is, what does that mean now? If everything has changed in the middle of a pandemic and my faith tells me that God is good all the time, then what is good? Right. What does that mean now? So, in lieu of a Patreon plug this month, I'd like to direct us to um, places where we can put our money towards local bail funds. So, the account Transnormativity, that's spelled exactly like it sounds, um, has put together a gorgeous list of local bail funds. Um, I mean, we've got everybody on here. We've got Lancaster, PA, Wichita, Kansas, Milwaukee, Nashville, El Paso, Lexington, um, The list goes on, and it's really important that we support those who are protesting and may have gotten arrested and may not be able to bail themselves out. Um, They are doing the work of creating the unrest necessary for change to uh, take place. And so this is one way that we can put 10 or 20 or 50, whatever we can afford, towards um, getting them out. And I've seen this work really well over the past couple of weeks. And I know that um, it's going to be important for there to be a sustainable and consistent financial support here. It's really easy for us as white folks to throw 10 or $20 at something and act like we supported it. Um, that's not the consistency required to actually create substantive change. Um, Another person that I think would be incredible for you to touch base with um, and to follow and to subscribe to and give money um, is Tori Douglas. You can find her at Tori Glass on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, She weekly does Reparations Friday where she highlights different accounts or folks, black folks who are in need of funds, um, often single mothers, often um, young women needing transportation to work whatever the case may be um and she also has an incredible white homework patreon program that you can get involved in get the newsletter get um get learning that's really what doing the work is about it's not about posting your fucking tuesday blackout post it's about um unlearning the racism that you absolutely have inside of you um it doesn't matter how you were raised um, you grew up in a culture that is absolutely um, infused on a subconscious level with this shit and so it has absolutely affected you it absolutely affects the way that you look at people and this is not a cause for shame 
Um, this is an opportunity for you to dig in and to find the ways that you need to retrain your body and your brain around um, systemic racism. And I, you know, I've been at this for probably <laughs> 2010 is when I first found out that reverse racism wasn't real. And I've been on my own um, journey of exploration ever since. And I have not nailed this and I never will. I don't think I will ever get to a place where I've eradicated all of the disgusting um, racism from my psyche, from the things that I choose to neglect, the things I choose not to see, um, the things that I don't prioritize. There will always be a level of that, I think. But um, I'm committed to continuing to learn, co continuing to own when I fuck this up, because I will, and you will. Um, I understand that there may, for white folks, be some fear around speaking up. Um, and really, I got to say, that's kind of your own ego. Um, I understand that the fear is very real. Um, but sitting in shame and also sitting in fear are not going to create any lasting change. So that is your work to do. Your work begins inside of yourself. So find some place to give your money this, this week, this month. Um, if that means that you need to pause your donation to Millenniagram, that's fine by me. Um, I want you to make that happen. So however it needs to, um, please do that. I don't need to know about it. Um, you don't need to give me any information. Um, in fact, I would hope that you wouldn't because this isn't a performance. Um, the more that we are speaking up about what we're doing, about the money that we're giving, about the good acts that we are performing, um, yeah, that's not real allyship. Um, so a lot of work to be done. This is just the beginning. Thank you for, um, spending this time with me and, um, gathering knowledge and curiosity from Tamisha. And I look forward to having more conversations like this. the thought just kept occurring to me as you were talking, like as a theologian, it requires a lot of, um, I imagine that it requires a lot of, um, courage and self presence to hold everything, all of your, all of your doctrines, all of your theological knowledge kind of open handedly. If God is change that you have to be, right. You have to be willing and even eager to continue evolving. That you're there's no arrival. Yeah. It's it's funny because I am learning this from Netflix binging, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I watched uh, Troll Hunters, which is a cartoon on Netflix. Really great, loved it. And I'm rewatching The Flash. I like to watch things that are kind of like bubbly yes, and great so yes. I, you know, I don't have to like pay <laughs> but um 
there were two things that stuck out to me in both of these series and one is that fear is very important to have um and in both of those there is a scene in the flash and like huge reoccurring theme in the troll hunters is that fear is important to maintain because it keeps you alert right like you need fear and i think that our understanding of faith like kills fear in a way and i think that you know obviously you know perfect love casts out all fear and da, 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 <laughs> right. lean into it and you have this confidence and blah 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 but i think that there are ways that to be afraid keeps us alert of our surrounding it keeps us on our toes right there is something that happens in our bodies that is important that we need to happen in case there is something we need to do on a diet. right and so what can we learn from that practice of embodiment in in, in terms of of fear and i think that it relates to the sense that like how do i correlate that to doubt right and i think about like a lot of people think about like doubting thomas and da, 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 da. we're told like we can't talk about that we are we're not allowed to talk about <clears throat> the the secret uh -huh, what if uh -huh. that's like in the back of our minds that like what if this is all <laughs> right what if not this is just some made up bullshit that somebody made up a few years ago we discovered this tablet about something that never really happened and our whole lives have been based on a lie right the whole way we look on the world has been based on a lie i think to an extent that is healthy hmm. and i think that it, it it keeps us on our toes in a way so that way other ways of being and other possibilities can be open mm. I think that that fear that sense of fear and that sense of doubt it keeps us like to in a way that's not like oh, okay this is it these are the lines that are drawn there's no other way to do it but this you know what I mean like that little bit of doubt keeps the question open of is there another way right is there a better way should we be doing something else if we had no fear and no doubt we wouldn't think about that because we're completely comfortable. There's no point to answer that question. There's no reason for that question to exist. And so I think that we work so hard at shunning fear or at quieting doubt or all these different things that we don't realize what it actually does for us. And it's not like fundamentals don't have fears and doubts. <laughs> right. It's that they don't have spaces to mm. talk about them. They don't have practices that help them cultivate that because the whole point is these are the things this is a black and white that's it point blank there's nothing else this is it for all times always it's set and it's and, and it's like you can't there is no there is nothing to do with fear and doubt but cast it out in right spaces. because they don't fit they don't or repress it or spaces. avoid like, it or shun it right and so what does it mean if you start cultivating practices to work through that even if it's just practices of naming that and so there's so much shame around naming doubts like we even talk about doubting thomas in the shameful sure. way like he needed to see the reality <laughs> of blah, blah 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 you need to live by your faith and it's like so he wanted to see it okay <laughs> That's the reality that we all face to stop pretending like that's not real and that we're less than because we have the same exact thoughts or maybe even worse. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, what do we do with that, though? Right. 
So I think that we um, we need to think about how we practice those things. And I don't know that we have spaces to practice that or liturgies that help us navigate that. Well, and the, it seems like the key piece here is embodiment because, like you said, you know, fundamentalists have fears and doubts, but um, they they can't sit with them. They can't hold space for them. They can't mm-hmm. be present with them. And obviously, our bodies often react to fear with our fight, flight, or freeze um, reactions mm-hmm. um, that sort of dissociate us and get us out of our bodies. Um, so we need, right. we truly need practices around embodiment to help us stop vilifying fear and doubt and be able to hold space for them and almost kind of welcome them. Yeah, and I think this is where like psychology and all these different things help because like fight, flight, or freeze, those things, those mechanisms are embodied ways of protecting us. Because there Absolutely. are certain spaces where you do need to you need utilize <laughs> one of those things. Yes. You know what I mean? And yes. so it's like that fit, that response in and of itself is not bad. It actually is protecting us. The problem is, is that sometimes we take old protective mechanisms and we keep them after we have, you know, gone through the trauma of the thing and we don't have new practices to help us in new spaces. And so we find ourselves falling back into the same scenarios because our practices take us back there because our practices for when are operate for when we were in that state. Right. And so a lot of the work that we do, whether it's in therapy, whether it's with people or in community or whatever, it's finding new ways, new practices, new mechanisms, new tools that help to protect us and help us to get to a point of thriving that work for us now. And it's like the things that you did when you were five to protect you from whatever, fill in the blank, are not the things that you need at 25 or at 35 (laughs) or at 45. They worked. They were necessary, but they're not always necessary. And so this, again, is where change is inevitable. Like even the things (laughs) that were good for us are not going to be good for us for all times in all spaces. Right. And so what is it that we're trying to navigate that is the nugget of that practice, that is the nugget of that thing? What is it cultivating in me that I can continue to to see in different ways so I can keep up with the fact that I am myself evolving? Like our bodies evolve. Like how do we push back change when literally I am not a five-year-old girl anymore (laughs) in any way, shape, or form? Everything about me has evolved. Yes. Why aren't my mechanisms evolving? Oh, that's really good. Um, I think it was the same blog post about Octavia Butler. You wrote about um, partnership and you wrote about kindness. And those are two words that I think, two concepts that you have a far more nuanced understanding of than maybe is the, um, the accepted definition so i would love to hear how you define both partnership and kindness in the world that we live in yeah um that partnership quote from the earth seed um from the novels is is probably one of my favorites um i think partnership it's really hard to define it's the Mm. If you think about, I mean, just right, partnership is, you know, 
a bee in a flower. You know what I mean? It's, you know, certain ways in which things navigate and there's mutual benefit and harm to neither. Like mm. each entity of that exchange gives up something, but it's not their life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not to the point of harm. Like, and they both, you know, they both benefit from that. And not just them, but it's the, the, the cultivation of the work that they're doing benefits a lot more than just the two entities involved. And so I think that the ways in which we think about um, partnership is that there is a mutual exchange. And I'm not, not, not necessarily thinking of like only compromise. Like I got a lesson mean, you got a lesson used. We can come up with like a diluted kind of thing that, no, it, it's, it's a compromise. It's like, okay, I give this and you give that. And the sum of what we bring um, benefits more than just us. Like the return is different. The return registers in a different way than what I've given. Like it's a given exchange that operates on a different level um, than mere um, bartering or mutual exchange, right? Yeah. And so I think then that the way in which we partner and the way in which we operate is never one-to-one. And so I think a lot of times the way we think about partnership is a one-to-one. We partner, we do this thing, I get something, you get something. It's a group project. We all put something in and then we all like, you know, we get an A. It's a quantifiable thing um, that we get. We operate. That's why most people hate it, right? Because they (laughs) want to make sure that they give just the same exact amount of time that everybody else gave because the quantifiable thing that we get is all the same. Yeah. Right? And so then the bickering is, you know... (laughs) Everybody lets me down in a group project because I always give at least 20 to 30 more minutes than everybody else. But we all get the same thing. And so then I feel, you know, like I got, you know, gypped. The short end of the stick. Right. Because it's a one-to-one exchange. Partnership is never about a one-to-one exchange. The thing that you give um, is a thing that will return to you exponentially. Because the thing that you give isn't just like, you know, I get this, you know, thing back. We work on this project. We work on this life together. And it's like okay, we cultivate this one thing and then I get that 100% or maybe I make a profit or da 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 That's not what partnership is about. Um, it's an exchange and a benefit that benefits you, but then also benefits others and benefits you in ways that don't show up right away and in ways that continue to benefit you throughout time. And mm. so I think that the way in which we think about partnership outside of a capitalistic one-to-one investment kind of mindset can shift the way in which we think about who we engage in partnership with, um, who we, to use a word, a lack, for lack of a word, invest time with. Um, and I think that kindness is drastically important in that mm. because kindness is the above and beyond without the expectation of the one-to-one exchange. It is the opening up of possibility. When you are kind to somebody, you you essentially, you know, are giving more. I, I when people think about like an eye for an eye, like they will give you just the right amount of eh, based on how <laughs> they feel you've sure. given them, right? Right. Ba- right. Kindness is not about that. Kindness is not about you've done this, so I will give you this much of response. It's not. It's not judging um, or putting a value on you to determine a certain output. It just is. And so in that, it, it does produce this the same kind of genera- uh, generativeness 
to make that a noun. I don't know if I did that right. Uh, <laughs> I love that it. Let's use it. Partnership does in the same way because it's not necessarily determined on some kind of one-to-one transaction. And so because change is unpredictable, thinking of ways in which that are beyond the one-to-one, which is a very controlled environment, it shifts you from that mindset to a mindset of uh, expectancy, but mm. of holding it with open hands. Like I expect something, but I can't in a way determine what it is that I'm expecting. Right. Right. Um, and so I think that the ways in which we honor and give to one another, that kindness is the basis for that. But that sense of partnership really kind of um, fuels that in, in a way that's really beautiful. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, I loved what you said in your, uh, one of your blog posts you wrote about, um, how along the way of, uh, teaching and speaking, you interact with three different types of people. And some are those who are just getting to know you. Mm -hmm. Um, there are those who think that they have you all figured out and those who really know you. And I think yeah. a lot of us who's, who spend any amount of time, you know, writing or speaking or, you know, in, in anything like that, um, we run into that a lot. And I love how unwilling you are to be pigeonholed um, or to be boxed in by folks who don't want to experience your expansiveness. Right. Um, I wonder if you could say more about that. Yeah, I, I've encountered the second group of people a lot. And these are generally people who, like I said, they're close to you, but they feel closer to you than you are to them. Mm. Or they feel like that they have some kind of ownership of you. And the ownership part is really key because I think that there are people who, because they have a certain insight to you, that again, this capitalistic mindset of like ownership um, as a part of relationship. And so when you do Ooh. something that is outside of their understanding, they feel that they're losing that power and they, be- they begin to say things to try to put you back in that box of articulation that they have you in. Right. So when you say, I'm thinking about doing this and they're like, but you never told me about that. Well, I don't literally tell you every thought that comes into my mind. That's literally impossible to do with anyone. in it. <laughs> and so like, I've known you for this amount of years, or if I, even if I've known you my whole life, I don't share everything with anyone. Mm. Nobody does. And so if you're trying to work through something, those people are the most dangerous because they have gained your trust and you, you um, respect their word. And so when they say this doesn't sound like you, you doubt. You doubt yourself. You. Yeah. Right. Because what you're being pulled back into is those rigid kind of ways of being and you're not leaning into change. You may be becoming something else. You may be becoming in a way that you didn't know. Um, and these sensibilities may not be like that thing you want to do, may not be the end result of the thing you do, but it may be naming something, naming a shift. And so if you have a person that says, well, that articulation isn't 100% true of you, so you need to put that away, and they're not willing to journey with you in that discovery, then what they do is they hold, they hold you back. Yeah. In your absolutely. own imagination. And so they are, they are therefore more dangerous than people who stereotype you. 
um, <laughs> because they have your ear, right? And um, because maybe there are some things you share with them, but because they always need boxes to put things in, that is the only way they will begin to think of you. And you can't become in a box. You take things out of the box before you assemble them to being something else. You don't craft mm. things in a box unless that box mm. is intentionally a part of the thing that you are creating, right? And so the people who know you but are constantly open to getting to know you are the people that you need in your corner. Because these are the people that a lot of them in a way, because they, they see your expansiveness and they see the possibility in you. Again, imagination. They've been yeah. cultivating their own possibilities. And so they're able to see the possibility in others and not potential. Like everybody talked about potential, but I remember an old minister used to, you know, used to say potential is not now, maybe never. <laughs> that's reality. Yes, it is. Not now, maybe never. But there's a possibility in you that could be cultivated. And these are the people that you go and you go, oh, you know, I've been really thinking about this. And they're like, yeah, you know, I kind of figured it's about time. I'm, <laughs> been I'm waiting really on glad. This. Finally, you know what I mean? Because they've seen the possibility in you for all of this time, but they didn't try to pressure you into that. They knew you had to come into it on your own mm. and you had to make your own decision about what that was because their practice of fear and doubt says, I may see this, but this may not be it. It right. may not be right now. Right. But it may also not be in the way that I'm thinking. And so I am not going to try to to hold them into that. I'm going to to walk with them and to push them into that discovery of the thing that they are becoming. Mm. And I have no control of what that is. And so when they come to me and say, this is the thing that's not it, you know, and, and it's not it's not to push back on the wisdom of people going, ah, I don't know about that. Because, right. I mean, that's that's different. It's not like they're trying to box you. It is that they are trying to um, make sure that you stay in the path of discovery and not getting out and not get out of the cocoon too soon. And so then the question is, well, how do you know the difference between the people that are trying to box you in and the people that are helping you not to come out of the box too soon? And the biggest thing is discernment. Yes. Ultimately, your intuition and you know and how you practice that intuition, whether that is, you know, through prayer or through meditation or through whatever. Um, God has given you. You have been gifted by, you know, whatever your background, God, the universe, yourself, your your biology, whatever that is, this incredible gift of knowing. And you don't even know how you know. You just know. <laughs> and you just cultivate the practice of knowing, right? And so however you cultivate that, whether through prayer or reading of scripture, um, seeking wisdom from ancestors, meditation, reading, but like what, however way, you know, cards, tarot cards, like whatever that is, you know, right? Mm. And you know, ultimately, if you really, truly listen, um, the people that are for you and the people that are not. Right. Um, the problem is, is we don't know how to listen for that. And so, again, a lot of these practices, when, when, when you think about change, a lot of these practices help you understand discernment, help you understand adaptability, help you understand how to listen. Mm. And so you're able then to discern which people are trying to box you and which people are trying to um, journey with you, but also protect you. Um, and I had to learn that a long way. And you will never get it 100% right. You will always mix up who those people are. <laughs> but part of you discovering who they are is also part of the lesson of cultivation, right? Absolutely. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's, it's just a journey and a way to know. And that is my way of articulating those interactions that I have learned. That may change in 10 years. I may have a totally different list of those people. But for <laughs> now, that, that, that helps me to, to understand 
um, one way of interacting with the people in, in, in my world. Absolutely. Well, so finally, you your first language is writing and you have been a storyteller your whole life. Um, what is, if we, if we zoom out, what is the story that you are trying to tell through your work? Hmm. I've been asked this question in different ways. Um, like, what is your, like people talk about calling and da 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 and the story, <laughs> and I love this, the way you framed the question about like, what is the story that you're trying to tell? Um, I think the answer is still kind of the same though. And uh, the way I answer the other questions is, um, I'm trying to create a space for other people um, to practice that sense of imagination. Um, so I guess the story that I'm trying to tell is there can be another way. There are other possibilities. Um, and it's okay to dream. It's okay to reimagine and reevaluate who you are and where you are. That there's something important in that practice. Um, even if it doesn't result in like an actual thing, the practice of itself is necessary and good. And I think that the work that I'm trying to do, the spaces that I'm kind of trying to cultivate is my own way of working out those practices, but it's also inviting people into knowing that it is worth um, engaging and cultivating. And so I guess the story that I'm trying to tell is that, you know, you are, you are more um, and you can lean into that. You can lean into that more. Um, I'm not saying if that more is good or bad. Like this is, <laughs> this is something Octavia Butler says. She's like, you know, religion has been used as a force for change. I ain't saying if it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it has been. Yes. And so I think that the sense of like cult practicing the cultivation of that moreness, I think that is good. What that more is and what you will discover, it'll be some good, it'll be some bad, some of it will be scary. I mean, it's all part of an adventure, right? Um, but it's worth leading into. And I think that's the story that I'm trying to tell. It's beautiful. Um, how would you like folks to engage with your work? Where should they find oh, you? Yeah, I'm on all the things. I'm not on the TikTok yet. <laughs> I think I'm going to leave that one alone. Um, <laughs> oh, God, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, Don't start. It's, it's too much stuff to keep up with. Um, <laughs> I am probably most active on Facebook. You can find me okay. by just, you know, typing in Tamisha Tyler or Tamisha A. Tyler. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I'm trying to use those more. You can also uh, interact with me a lot on, um, on my website. TamishaTyler.com. I got a new feature on there where I'm actually showcasing a lot of women of color who are doing similar work um, as a way to share my space and honor those who are with me. So you can check that out. My blog is a lot of the spaces that I kind of interact. So you can um, read that, comment. I love comments. I love interacting with people. Um, I love going back and forth with people. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, I think that that's... That's pretty much it. I, I do talks and I do do trainings and things like that. So if people want to connect and about a class or about something like that, there's a contact um, space on there. You know, if you want to just give me money too, you can do that too. You know? <laughs> I can yes, send you my absolutely. Venmo, my Zip. Like I mean, like there's so many ways to to, <laughs> to connect with me. Um, I've been getting a lot of requests for people to use my poetry and different things. I do ask that they request that from me, and they they you know name their source and we talk about contracts and stuff like that but 
I love when um, my work and my thoughts are used in that generative way. Mm. Um, I would just like to know and keep up with it. So Absolutely. Um, I what's will the, respond. What's the best place to find your poetry? On the blog. On the blog. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of stuff I haven't um, posted because I'm, I'm working on um, the possibility of a, a collection. Um, but oh, there are quite a few yes. on there that I think will be worth engaging in and, and conversing about. So I love knowing people's thoughts, even if they disagree and they have questions. Um, we don't have to come to the same point, but I think the conversation is necessary. So highly encourage that. And the blog is right is one of the tabs on TamishaTyler.com. It's on your yes, website. It's, it's, it's just blog because I, I don't have a title for it. If you have ideas for titles, that would be awesome. <laughs> I'm really bad at that. So I'm like, blog. Yeah. So. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tamisha. Such a joy to have you. I feel like my, I feel like my imagination has been expanded by talking to you, and I'm excited to share this with our listeners. Awesome. I'm excited to hear it and engage with them. Perfect. Thank you, Tamisha. You're welcome. <laughs>